You're listening to the Pimp Cron Podcast. Welcome one, welcome all to episode 210 of the Pimpcron Warhammer podcast. I am the aforementioned Pimpcron, and I am welcoming you to my show. We are brought to you today by GameMat.eu for pre-painted terrain, neoprene mats, STL files, all that good stuff, and you can get 10% off with Event 10. Yay! Also, we have Panhandle3D.com for your... 3D printed terrain needs, because if you're like me and you don't have a 3D printer, they are an excellent source for 3D printed terrain, and you can get 10% off there with Podcast 10, and I believe shipping is free over $80, and when you're buying a bunch of terrain like I do, it's not hard at all to meet the $80 mark, so that's a, a nice perk as well. Oh, you know what? You know what? We have a returning Patreon patron! That's right, Nate is back in the saddle, and Nate has come back to us, and we welcome Nate with open arms. Thank you so much, Nate, for coming back to us. You know, I love a prodigal son story, and this is one of them. So thanks for coming back with us, Nate. Greatly appreciated. Happy to have you. So what are we talking about tonight? Well, we have a pretty long session of Real Talk with the Pimpcron discussing whether or not it's true to set the record straight. Does Games Workshop... Cater to competitive players, yes or no. And we will uh, explore that. We also, the only other segment we have tonight, is that, uh, want that or want that not, with the Chaos Possessed for the Chaos Space Marines. They've got a brand new bo uh, box set out, and want to see whether or not I want that. What else have I been up to? I finished my campaign with my kids with Brutality. We played a big game. We got pizza. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I tried to beat them, and um, half of them did die, but basically what we said is that there was a teleportation device they uh, recovered from this damaged alien, and they were going to teleport themselves back home out of the brutal. It's a bit of a speed of plot sort of thing, just to get the campaign over with, because we always like to end it on whether or not they go back to their home dimension, uh, at least with the kids I do. So um, I had my Sesame Street characters, I had Super Grover, I had... Um, um, Big Bird and The Count and Cookie Monster and Elmo and um, all these models I've mentioned before months ago when I made them probably a year ago and uh, I, I love playing with them so uh, we fought we had the kids deploy in the very center and I randomized where my people scattered around them and it ended up being three out of four corners had my people in it and they're coming at them well uh, they nominated my son because my son ends up having a save of seven 70% save and five hit points. He really uh, kind of power game the stats there, but uh, he was the tank of the whole team and he was a fire ghost and he was actually a Lord Executioner model from Games Workshop, but he painted him as fire, not not ghost. And um, so my entire team ignored all of the other team members on my kids warband and just went after him for this teleporter and we said look you're trying to figure out how this works and at the end of turn four if one of you has it in your hand and the enemy has not gotten it then you will all be whisked away back to your home dimension and they said okay 
And uh, he was tanking. Oh, my God. At one point, he had like four of their people around him and they're just charging him and he's saving it. and they're charging him and they're shooting him and they're doing this and that. They paused him and they just uh, they gave him agony and they, they're beating the crap out of him. And he was just slowly being whittled down. Eventually, on the last turn, he actually did die and he dropped it. So then my other daughter um, picked it up. And she ran away with it. And they were shooting at her. And they tried to charge her. They failed the charge. It was all very climactic at the very end. And um, so they ended up killing all but two of my warband. And I ended up killing two out of four of theirs. But we just said for the sake of it that the two dead people respawned right there. Because they must have camped there the previous night. And then they all four got whisked away and sent back to their home dimension. So... That was a lot of fun. Um, we played with real terrain. I usually use RPG mats just because they would rather play inside, uh, like in the kitchen or something. And uh, it's hard to like bring terrain into the kitchen. It's just a big hassle. So we usually are, do RPG mats. But it is always a big treat for them to do the, um, the 3D terrain. So I, I made a whole board and I made ruins and it was tightly packed terrain. And I like to see them walk in and go, whoa, that's what we're playing on. So that was a lot of fun. Um so that's what I did. I also played, what did I even do this week at Warhammer? I can't even recall. Oh, I played with my friend TJ and I'm honestly recalling this as I'm telling you because my brain is pretty fried at this point in the season. Uh, he played his Slaves to Darkness and I played my Corn Bloodbound or Blades of Corn. It's not called Corn Bloodbound anymore. Blades of Corn. And we played a narrative game. We did the pick three lists out of four whole thing. Um, we did use stratagems uh, just because he's used to using stratagems, but we did not use victory points. And we tried something new, which I was really excited about. Um, without going to too much detail, you know how H Sigmar, well, even 40K, you have your half of the board, right? Not necessarily your deployment, but your half the board. And basically, we were going to roll for two one-foot-by-one-foot one deployment zones on our half of the board. So, um, the center square foot touching the middle line is one. And then slide all the way to the right side of the board touching the center line is two. And then slide all the way back to my back right corner edge is three. And then center of the board is, on my board edge is four and then five and six, you know, in a clockwise fashion. And we rolled two dice in the beginning to determine like where my two deployment zones were and where his two were. And yes, it's possible if I rolled a one and he rolled a one or it really if I rolled a one and he rolled a one, if I rolled a two and he rolled a six or I rolled a six or he rolled a two we would have uh, deployment zones right next to each other. I mean, like, touching. Um, and we said there's no such thing as a nine inches away or whatever. You just have to stay three inches away. So what it ended up being is that my two deployment zones were pretty aggressive towards his one deployment zone, and his other deployment zone was in the far back corner. So uh, we narratively, he actually came up with a narrative reason for it, and he said, oh, what we're trying to do is I'm trying to kill these people that are deployed in this area. And if I kill them, then uh, I win the game. If any of them survive, then he wins the game. They could have had an ar artifact that we wanted. They could have had information or we were just trying to simply murder them. They were remnants of a battle, you know, and they were fleeing and we killed them. So he had, I'm going to say 10 Chaos Warriors, 
a uh, shrine and a chaos lord and I uh, can't remember everything that was in there, but he had that in that deployment zone. We had to kill it. Well, think of my forces as a C, right? And my C was clamping around that. And I tried my best to ignore his reinforcements coming in. I was just trying to kill those people. That was my objective. And once again, we didn't need victory points. We didn't need a bunch of hullabaloo. We just were playing to a narrative point. And I'm enjoying this more and more. And um, so my forces started pincering him around like a sea. Well, by the time that we were almost completely enveloping his remaining people, the bottom of my sea, the lip of that, was a bunch of Korgraths, and they were killed by him. So then that left an opening. And his last, I think it was like four or five guys, fled. And his Chaos Warriors were fleeing as his reinforcements impacted on me and tied me up. So then he kept doing the uh, rally or whatever it's called where you add, you, know, you roll sixes for everyone that's missing and you bring them back. So he was slowly able to rally some more people to, he got up to like, I don't know, six people or something, seven people. And then I summoned some blood letters. I summoned some more blood letters and we charged him and all that. Uh, it was like 70 or 80% chance he was going to win and be able to survive at least one of his models by that time because he had, he was able to flee away from most of my army that was left. And, but we weren't entirely sure. So we decided to play a sixth turn just to see how it went. And that solidified it. He definitely had, he had four, five people left out of all the ones that were originally deployed there. Um, so it was a very fun game. So I, uh, I did lose, but it didn't feel like losing because it was still fun. <laughs> so um, that is basically my new crusade now. It's just to play narrative games and simplify it and just have fun. So, also, another key point in that is that at one point on turn two, I got the initiative, and I could have went first, and I was thinking to myself, hmm, now, this decision needs to be made on whatever will make the game the most exciting or the most fun. If I get to go first, does that too negatively impact him? Or if I go second, does that give him a chance to bounce back if, I'm, if I've got the upper hand? And I think I, we both talked it over and he encouraged me to just go first because he was pretty positive he could handle, um, you know, the defense of, of these squads in this deployment zone. And I said, OK, so because uh, I was afraid of like severely damaging him, but he was pretty confident in his abilities and he did. He, he repelled our attacks and everything. So but you see, that's part of the philosophy of narrative gaming is what would be coolest versus, oh, what's going to make me win? You know, so I, I was on the verge of just letting him go first versus me because I was afraid that I might win too easily, you know, or my forces would. So it was very fun. Anyway, uh, that is roughly all I've been up to. Probably some more things. I don't remember. Let's get on with the next segment. Want that or want that not? Well, this week's Want That or Want That Not is the Chaos Space Marines Possessed. They've got brand new models, and what does the Pimpcron think of them? Well, first off, I like them. They've got a new style to them, and they are very varied. Is that a proper way to say that? Very varied. And um, they've got a lot of mutations, and let's, let's go line by line with them. But I do want to let you know that in some cases, they've got feet, in some cases, they've got hooves. In some cases, they've got like um, uh, a 
double jointed knee, which is pretty cool looking, kind of like a um kind of like a dog or a cat leg, but they actually don't have a double joint knee, it just kind of looks that way. But um so the first guy has like this fleshy scythe for an arm, and he's got fire coming out of his backpack, and he's got a giant fleshy hand on the other one. He looks pretty much like a regular cast space marine. He's got feet, he's barefoot, they're all barefoot for some reason. Uh but uh he's pretty cool. This this guy is a-okay in my book. He looks pretty neat. Let's go to the next guy. The next guy is much more fleshy than the first guy. I can't tell what his right arm is, but his left arm looks like the what is the Mutileth Vortex Beast hand, if you know what that is. Um it's got the uh like three fingers and they're all clawed. Um he is also not wearing a helmet, unlike the first guy. And actually he's the only one not wearing a helmet. And he's got horns, and he's got his thighs exposed, and his arms exposed. They're all fleshy. And uh, I really like it. I like this guy way better than the first guy. This guy is very interesting looking. The next person, which appears to be the champion or whatever, he has an actual chainsaw. I mean, a, a chainsword. And he's got an icon on his back. He's got a helmet with horns. His thighs are also exposed. That must be the fashion of the week for Possessed. And looks like he's giving me the middle finger. I don't know exactly what's going on. It looks like a single Wolverine claw coming out of his hand. He is fine. I think he's okay. He's he's just fine. But the next two are probably the best out of the whole thing. First off, you've got one guy in the back. He's in full armor, unlike the others. But his little things that stick off his backpack are all fleshy and spiky, which is cool. And he's got a giant crab claw for one hand, which is totally kind of common and kind of, you know, fine. But the crab claw looks pretty neat. But his left arm is what's really cool. His left arm is this giant, it's a very interesting idea. It's a very giant fleshy mace. And it's got all these bony protrusions coming out of it. And it looks like it's kind of bendable so he can whack people with it. And he's also got a bunch of other tentacles coming out of that arm as well. And he is a really cool looking model. He also has a helmet on, but he's got several spikes that have broken through the helmet. And uh, it's just a very, very cool look. And then the last guy is, he's the one with the double jointed knees, which looks really, really neat. Kind of like a dinosaur or something like that. Uh, Once again, can't tell what he's got. Oh, he's holding the Space Marine helmet. He's standing on a Space Marine and he's holding the helmet in his one normal arm and hand that's covered in armor. But on the other side is what I really like about him besides his double jointed knees is that he's got several like spider arms coming out of his one arm, like spider legs, and uh, they look really, really cool. So ultimately, out of these five models, they all look decent to great. Like there's none of them that look bad. That first guy is kind of meh and the sergeant is a little meh, but they still are interesting. They're still good models. Um, this whole set has some really interesting looks to them, and I am hoping, I, I imagine they are monopose, I was hoping that maybe they would have some different options, like the old Possessed Kit was really a great deal, because it came with so many different mutations you could use for different things, it came with wings, it came with all sorts of stuff, um, and I'm assuming this is all monopose, it'd be nice if even if they gave you a monopose body and legs, if they would give you different arm options, you know, they all just slot into a socket or something, so you could switch them up, but you know, Games Workshop's getting away from that, now of course you can kitbash your own, but they are going to discourage it as much as possible, 
Um, the last two that I just told you about, the the Ankylosaurus-style mace arm and the spider legs, they are some very cool-looking models. And the other ones are just fine, too. So they're $60 for these five people, which, wow, that's $12 a model we're paying. Let that sink in for just one second. $12 a model. They are really cool models, though. Um, I know that Possessed got some buffs in this new book. Um, I already own Possessed, so I probably will not be buying these, but I definitely see where you would want to buy these. They're new models, the detail's cool, all of them look really neat, so I suppose this is kind of a lukewarm want that for me. Um, I don't know how willing I would be to pay 60 bucks for just these five dudes. You know, it's one thing if you're paying $60 for five Terminators because they got a lot of hit points and they're very durable, etc., etc., but, I mean, they're arguably very durable, but 60 bucks just for five somewhat regular dudes stat-wise, what are they, two wounds or something? They they might shock me and be three, but I think they're two wounds, and uh, I haven't even looked at the new book. James has it, but I haven't. Um, anyway, for 60 bucks, seems like it's a bit pricey, but they are cool-looking models, so it is a want-that from the Pimpcron. Let's move on, folks. Now it's time for Real Talk with Pimpcron. This, of course, is Real Talk with the Pimpcron, and today we are discussing, does Games Workshop cater solely to competitive players? Let's try to take a balanced and fair look at this issue and um, try to keep our personal views that we've already formed out of it and actually just look and see what Games Workshop does and whether or not the often stated accusation of Games Workshop only caters to competitive players. See if that's actually true or not. So the first thing that we have to get into is that as a game developer, and I have some experience in this due to Brutality Skirmish Wargame, the first thing you have to do when you're creating a game system is you have to have competitive players in mind. And the reason for that is that the competitive players are going to boil all of your mechanics down to efficiency for the points or whatever resource you're using to acquire that unit, typically points, and uh, the efficiency in durability, the efficiency in damage output, the efficiency in maneuverability or objective capping or manipulation or buffing or debuffing of other units. So you have to see if this thing is really, really good at offense and this thing is kind of meh at the only thing that it's designed for, which would be buffing. Well, obviously, though, even though technically buffing may be more powerful than melee or let's say damage output, that is just kind of okay at it. And the damage output one is really good at damage output. So obviously, if they cost the same amount, even though they have two different functions, assuming everything else is the same, the same durability and all that, well, obviously, one of them is more worth it to you. It may not be the direction you want to go, but it's the direction that that model is geared towards, and it's geared towards doing what it's good at better than the other thing, even though they may not be completely apples to apples. So when you are designing a game system, you have to have comp competitive players in mind because they are going to strip everything fun, everything flavorful, and everything uh, characterful or different or unique out of your game system 
because they are going to strip it down to just what everything functions as and which things function better than other things. So you definitely have to have competitive players in mind for that. If not, if you don't do that and you're just like, oh, haha, all the players are just friendly. What you end up doing is sabotaging your in-game system because the competitive players are going to exploit every single one of your weaknesses in your game design and they're going to crush the narrative people. So the narrative people are probably going to be disinterested in joining your game because the competitives are so darn hardcore. Um, Heroclix is a really good example of this. Heroclix has some serious power creep in things, and they have some seriously nasty lists. Now, WizKids does occasionally try to step in and FAQ or errata stuff, but they do something very similar to Games Workshop where they just kind of throw stuff out there and see what turns out to be the best because you'll have no better playtesters than communities of tens of thousands of, of players in, in the wild. So they can playtest all they want, but throwing it out into the wild and letting the community playtest it for you before you FAQ it really is the best way to do it. Even though I don't like that method, and even though I think it's messy and it creates a lot of imbalance temporarily and all of that, and you jerk your players around because, oh, this was really good and now it's crap or now it's mediocre or whatever... Um, I don't like that, but as far as efficiency, that is definitely it. It's the same thing with video games, where they're like, oh, we've got a bunch of bugs. Well, we don't know where the bugs are exactly, so let's just throw it out there, let the community playtest it for us. They'll report the bugs or give us back, back the telemetry from their, the, you know, the data that we mine from them, and then we can fix it. Well, it sure is efficient, but it's not great for the back end for the, of the players. Take something like... Uh, the rule of three, right? Games Workshop institutes the rule of three for 40k, where you can't take more than three of any particular unit. Okay, well, the only reason why that is instituted at all is because competitive players would most definitely take 17 of the same unit if it was really awesome. And narrative players are probably not going to do that. And if narrative players do do that, it's probably because it's whatever the the situation on the tabletop calls for. It's not because that unit is so fantastic they want to bring a million of them. But once again, if you have competitive and narrative people in the same community, then you have to try to safeguard it the best you can and balance it the best you can. Because narrative people don't really care about balance that much. Casuals don't care that much about balance because in their heart of hearts, they're not going to try to look for the most efficiency and the most out of every one of their points. They're going to take things they enjoy. They're going to take models they just painted. They're going to take models that fit whatever the narrative is. You know, they're, they're just not that concerned with it. But you definitely are going to have some competitive players in your game, and you definitely have to try to safeguard as best as you can against them exploiting your game. So whether it comes with brutality or it comes to Warhammer or Magic or Heroclix, whatever, competitive players are definitely your main focus. Then, after you get that hopefully ironed out, right? It took me three years of playtesting to get all the the stuff really ironed out for brutality, then you can start throwing in fun stuff that is going to be more narrative and more flavorful for all your casual players. But is that really catering 
to competitive players. No, that really isn't. It may appear that way, but it's actually safeguarding against their exploitation. So the next thing you got to worry about, and I know we already talked a little bit about this, but power creep. As games evolve and change over time and new expansions are released and new codexes are released or they release new models or any of that, in my case of Brutality, releasing new upgrades or model traits or legendary traits with different supplements, it is definitely going to change the meta for your game system. And even if everything is completely as balanced as you possibly can, right? A lot of people claim Games Workshop intentionally power creeps all of its codexes to sell new codexes and get people into that army temporarily and buy models, and that very well may be the reason why they do that. Or, I have a hunch, that it really is just um, poor management (laughs) or it's sloppy design that does that. It really is a sort of creative sinkhole that creators have to be worried about because... The meta is, well, it's like an ecosystem, or it's like a community, right? All the different parts, your faction traits, your artifacts, your all those things, your options that all your players have. They could play this army, they could play that army, whatever. All of that is like a pot of soup, right? Your space marines are the chunks of carrots, and your core rules are the broth, and your necrons are the noodles, etc., etc. Okay, so... The minute that you start adding things, you're going to put that soup out of balance. So let's say, oh, you know, this new army comes out, like the, whatever they're called, the new dwarves, the legions of Voltan, or whatever they're called. Um, You're going to throw those in the pot now, right? So picture you just cut up a bunch of onions, and those are your new space dwarves, and you chuck them in the soup. Now... It doesn't matter how powerful those onions are in the soup, okay? The onions could have really little taste, or the onions could have a lot of taste. It doesn't matter. You introducing a whole new element into that soup is going to change the flavor. It doesn't matter. Let's say the onions have no flavor. Let's say the the new space dwarves have absolutely no competitive impact at all on your game system. It is still a certain amount of bloat to your soup, and it's going to dilute things, okay? There's going to be some people that choose to play the really meh units, you know, there's going to be people that choose to stick with the more powerful ones, or or whatever, it's going to change, I guess what I'm trying to say is, the meta and the value of units in a game system are all relative to each other. There's no such thing as, oh, a you know, 100-point Space Marine. Wow, that's really cheap. Because you and I right now are thinking, 100-point Space Marine, that's not cheap at all. But then, if we looked further and saw that a Dreadnought was 700 points or something like that, let's say 2,000 points for a Dreadnought and a Space Marine is only 100 points, you'd be like, oh, well, in relation to each other, a 100-point Space Marine, oh, that's actually a really good deal, right? So, it hopefully that illustrates to you that it's all relevant. And going back to my game brutality, when I introduced the latest supplement that we did, um, the narrative missions modules, we included a new upgrade, essentially a new unit for each of the different classes. Even though I try my very hardest to make all the power level the same, I am not trying to make any of this required to be purchased, you know, to stay on top of it or whatever, but they are new options. 
And regardless of how powerful or weak they are, they're going to affect the other options now that I've added more to the soup. And power creep is, an, is a somewhat inevitable thing for game designers. And the reason why is you set up the system, right? Okay, you can, you know, move, run, shoot, cast powers, charge, whatever. Okay, you set up your core rules. Then the initial, like a lot of times you see this in, in board games or card games or whatever, the initial forces all follow those basic patterns. They stay within the realm of things, right? Maybe someone can shoot twice, but they can still shoot. And they can still move and run and charge. Well, eventually, creators run out of ideas. Eventually. It's, it is truly inevitable. It might be sooner. It might be later. But ultimately, they end up having to... It gets harder and harder to fit all of their variations into a set structure of game development in, in the rules. So then they're like, oh, well, this unit... And then they have to go way outside the rules. Like, okay, no one is allowed to fly. Nobody flies in this game. That's just the game, right? Oh, now this new army or new unit can fly now. And no one else can. Well, the introduction of a whole new mechanic into a game system can be a huge impact into that, into that soup. Um, but ultimately, they have to do it because they... They need to be able to expand and change things. And ultimately, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But then the game designers have to really take a hard look at the end result of adding, let's say, flight into their game. Okay, this one army is the only thing that can fly. All right, we need to test it and look real hard at how much flight is going to impact the game and then are we going to be forced to start adding flight to other existing armies? Or are we going to, or is flight super broken? Should we nerf flight and just make it, you know, weaker? Or like there's a, once you start introducing new mechanics, it is a real slippery slope. And you can very quickly get very overpowered stuff. And then the course correction for that is that you can over nerf your stuff. You know, okay, flight seems really powerful. So let's say they can only fly if there's no enemies nearby and they can't fly when they run and they blah blah. I mean, then it becomes a whole nother slippery slip in the reverse direction and then you have a really underwhelming new release, right? Because compared to everything else, compared to the soup or the the ecology of what's already existing, it may be super weak or super powerful. So, if you're giving Games Workshop the benefit of a doubt, they do not necessarily release these armies and new units and all that and the power creep. They don't necessarily do that to increase sales. That may be a byproduct of it, but I am not entirely sold on the idea that they actually intentionally do it. Because it's kind of like one of those things whenever you see the government does things and it makes no sense and you're like, okay... So was the outcome their actual intention and their geniuses, right? Because the outcome is kind of unexpected compared to what they did. Uh, and I, I'm not thinking of anything specific, but a lot of times they like institute new programs and stuff, right? Um, th is the outcome secretly what they wanted and their geniuses? Or did they horribly fail at the thing that they just tried to do and they're all idiots, there's a very, very fine line between idiots and geniuses when you're looking at it from the outside. And Games Workshop, I've always been on the fence. I'm like, man, I wonder if they're smart enough to actually intentionally increase the power level in these codexes, or is it just a product of trying to 
come up with new mechanics and trying to ever expand in the rule set that you created and you eventually run out of room in that mechanic set and you have to add new mechanics or whatever. And it's a very hard thing to determine. After my talks with Alan Merritt, he seems at least, you know, the old guard of Games Workshop. He seems very genuine in the fact that all of their designers were just very casual players and they were not super interested or concerned with the competitive play. So when it's kind of one of those things like the rule of three, like the rule of three was probably an afterthought to them because they're thinking, oh, well, who would take more than three of something, right? But they're not thinking of the competitive players. They always have kind of an innocent or naive look at things. And I think if I had to guess, I would say that Games Workshop errors on the stupid side, not the genius side. So I think it's a byproduct of just trying to add new options and grow your options in the mechanics you run out of room and have to create new mechanics i think that's probably what happens and then they see what's already been made and came out and they're like oh okay well what if we do this instead and the whole this instead could be wildly more powerful than what exists or it could be kind of underwhelming um so i i am really on the fence with that part i do not personally think that they cater to the competitives and try to boost sales with the power creep intentionally. I think it's just a product of game design. Maybe I rambled on too long about that, but of course game design is one of my interests, and I don't think a lot of people are super fluent in game design and don't realize what goes into it and all the pitfalls and slippery slopes of it exist. The next point would be, are all of the FAQs and everything for Games Workshop, are they geared towards competitive players? And I would say 100% yes, because the narrative and casuals are far less interested in the points efficiency, like I mentioned before. So the FAQs are their attempt to try to balance everything so that everybody can have fun. The narratives and the, the casuals can enjoy their game, and hopefully they don't get crushed quite as bad by the competitives when they do play them. And that would be the purpose of the FAQs. But wait, let's talk about something completely different. What about Path to Glory in Age of Sigmar and Crusade in 40k? Ignoring even open play and narrative play, ignoring all that. Because obviously open play is you bring whatever you want and you make up whatever rules that you want. And uh, narrative play is once basically you bend the rules to suit your scenario. I know that the vast majority of everybody plays matched play. Probably 80-90% of the players play matched play. But really, open and narrative are very good options. Um, so obviously, those cater to the narrative people. But the Path to Glory and the uh, Crusade for those two different systems, you have to look at those and say, are they catering to narrative people? Or are they catering to competitive people? And obviously, if you've ever looked at them, it's basically a extreme light narrative that's added to your units as they level up and they can get better perks and and all of that it's like um it's a campaign and a lot of times it's small at least starts out smaller scale than 40k and you give character to your different units and things like that and you play basically a pseudo narrative campaign with that and i think personally that obviously caters to the casuals and the narrative people compared to the competitives what about all the lore 
in the codexes. That's not for competitive players. And I'm talking about the hardcore competitive players that play this with ruthless efficiency and they, they're playing to win. I wouldn't really call them whack players, but just the, the really hardcore people. That really is neutral. Competitives can like it, casuals can like it, but it's not specifically for competitive players, and it probably gears closer to the narrative or the casual players. So if you're looking at Warhammer as a whole, right, the price is the same for everybody no matter what your play style. Okay, that's fine. Um, so that's really neutral. The lore, there's a ton of lore, and that probably skews closer towards narrative and com casual than competitive. So that's kind of in the uh, casual column, okay? Then you talk about FAQs is obviously in the, the competitive column, except that it actually really benefits the casuals more than it benefits the competitives, ironically. Because competitive versus competitive player, you know, they're going to just take the most broken crap possible and you're not worried about it because you're both trying to kick each other's dick in right but really it's a safeguard for the casuals so in a way the faqs and erratas and all that are partially they've got one foot in the casual column and two feet in the uh the competitive column so we're still not really seeing anything that's clearly geared towards competitives what about the power creep the power creep either could be stupid or genius and i tend to think it's just stupid so i don't think it's i think the power creep certainly does benefit the competitive players but i don't think it's designed to cater to the competitive players now you can have your own opinion on that because it's very gray area and it really is whatever your gut feeling about games workshops schemes and goals and all that are right then we talk about game balance now Ultimately, game balance benefits everybody, but it benefits competitive players more because they're going to cheese it as much as they can. So I think you're going to see after this discussion that Games Workshop does not really cater to competitive players. Now, they do to some degree, right? I mean, they, some of the things they do are in line for competitive players, but if you look at one codex, you just open up the codex, right? You've got the lore that's pretty neutral. You've got all of the uh, narrative stuff they add to the rules, such as like dynastic agents don't get... Any, I'm talking about Necrons here. Dynastic agents like um, Triarch Praetorians, they don't get the dynasty protocols because they're not actually part of the dynasty, you know? Things like that. Um, or there can only be one patriarch in an army or in a... Um, uh, detachment for Gene Steeler cult. Those type of things really have nothing to do with competitive players. That's purely for casuals because it's narrative focused. Then if you look at the rest of the codex, what you're looking at is a path to glory or a crusade, which obviously does not cater towards competitives. And then you've um, in the core rules, you've got open and narrative play. So you've got open narrative and matched play. Well, two thirds of those options the Games Workshop offers are catering towards people that aren't super competitive. So my conclusion that I draw from all this is that is Games Workshop catering to competitive players? I would say no in the end. I ultimately think that players themselves, we are the ones to blame here because we love matched play and we love stratagems and we love power creep and we love getting excited about new product and we love all of that stuff. So the majority of the community plays matched play 
And I feel like maybe we should change that. More people should be playing narrative or open play or whatever. And then people can enjoy the game in different ways and they don't have to be all about competitiveness. But by and large, most of the players are. So when it comes down to, is Games Workshop catering to competitives or is the community catering to competitives? I think the community caters to towards competitives by and large, far more than Games Workshop does. And I'm not taking up for Games Workshop. I'm not simping for them, none of that. I'm just saying, if you look clearly at this and objectively at this, they offer a ton of narrative rules and a ton of narrative options. And yes, competitive is part of that, but some of those are necessary evils. You know, you're going to have competitive players. You need to cater them to somewhat. And when you do cater to them, such as Rule of Three and all of that, FAQs, you're actually evening the playing field between them and the casuals. So it's still in service of the casuals. Hopefully I did not belabor this topic, but I was really interested in it and I wanted to explore it with you guys. So I will see you next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you to GameMat.eu for supporting the show and Panhandle3D.com for supporting the show. And my beautiful sexy goods, Bella, Patreon, Patreons. See you next week.